So now we're going to transition into another time of worship, and so I'll invite Natalie to come up. Uh, if you all want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we'll have reading our message. Good morning. This is God's, God's Word. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, church family. How are we? You guys good? Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, Natalie, you did a great job reading the scripture. Thank you for that. The subject matter we're dealing with today is of a more, you know, potentially sensitive topic. And during the 9 a.m. service, our dear sister Renee was doing the scripture reading. And those of you who know Renee, she got the giggles uh, during the scripture reading and couldn't make it through. And it was like that old, like the Tinkerbell, like we all had to like clap and get her through it. And so uh, you guys missed out. Uh, you did sleep in, hopefully, but you missed out on one of the more memorable scripture readings we've ever had at Sound City Bible Church. I just want you to be aware, just, you know, sometimes try the 9 a.m. Who knows what might happen. We are, as a church, we're going through a series. We're taking six weeks to look at a series of topics that we affectionately refer to as things that are hard to do. How many of you know that following Jesus can be challenging? And there's a wide variety of of things that as we follow Jesus that are hard to do. And today we're going to look at the subject of singleness, to be single, particularly in a church, a church community like ours that has many married people, many families with young children. Uh, Being someone who is unmarried in a context like that can provide unique challenges as a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to address those challenges. And uh, let let me do this. Before I even intro my intro, let me just pray. Uh, this is, I'll, I'll be honest, this is a challenging sermon for me to teach. It's a challenging sermon for all of us to hear. And I really want the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct our time. So you pray with me, pray for me, even as we go before the Lord. God, would you, would you help me? I want to speak those things that are true. And I want to speak those things that are helpful. And I want to only speak those things. And I, I want to pray that you would help each and every single one of us to hear, whether we are married or unmarried. I pray that you would help us to hear those things that you want us to hear today. That you would stir up within us affection for and devotion to Christ Jesus. That he would be the one that we look to for our completion, for our, for our, our ultimate satisfaction, for every longing and desire of the human heart. Lord Jesus, would we look to you for that ultimate uh, satisfaction and to no one and no thing else. Be with us now as we look in the scriptures, as we investigate this topic, and as we uh, spend some time together uh, thinking through these things. May our attention and, our, and our, our, our eyes go to Jesus now. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You know, some of you might, might think, particularly for those of you who are married, you might think, why are we talking about singleness that only affects a smaller percentage of the population in a church community like this? And so let me just address that question by saying, you started life single, and you spent a significant portion of your life in a state of being unmarried. I'm not aware of any arranged marriages in our church community, but even if you waited until you were, let's say you got married pretty young, 20 years old, that's a, that's a quarter of your life, approximately, give or take, that you spent being not married. And as maybe uh, unpleasant as it is to think about for those of you who are married, it is highly rare and highly unlikely that both you and your spouse will pass away at the same time. 
Should the Lord tarry? Should he not return? Uh, There is a high likelihood that one or the other of you will experience singleness again on the other side of marriage. And then when you add in the, the tragic and unfortunate reality of divorce, singleness is something that affects each and every single one of us. Amen? And so we need to talk about it. I will also say that the Bible teaches that we as a church are one body made up of many different parts. When one part of the body rejoices, we all get to share in that joy. When one part of the body is lonely or sorrowful or longing, we all share in that responsibility. And so whether you are married or unmarried, we are all in this together. And so married people, you need to understand the challenges and the burdens that are faced by those in our community who are unmarried and seek to walk in love. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Now, I feel like maybe one of the worst and least qualified people to speak on the subject of singleness because my wife and I, we were just talking about this recently. My wife and I met when we were, I'm kid you not, when we were 13 years old, we dated all through high school. We got married three days after her 18th birthday. couple of questions run through my mind. First of all, what, what were our parents thinking? Second question is, like, I know some 17 and 18-year-olds now, and God love you. You're wonderful people, but my goodness. Uh, I don't recommend it. God has been gracious to us, but I, I do feel a sense of, like, I, I don't really remember what it was like to kind of truly be single. And for those of you who are unmarried as adults, walking through the whole, you know, dating and trying to find your, your spouse, uh, your potential spouse, I, I don't share in those burdens. I don't share in those stories. I don't really even know what that's like. And so I want to do my very best not to point you to the experiences and the wisdom of Aaron Gray, but I want to point you to the truth of the word of God. And the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of singleness. Our, our passage, our primary passage was from 1 Corinthians 7, but I am going to move around a fair bit today because this is a topical sermon. And so we're going to look at various passages throughout the scriptures on the subject of singleness. I will also tell you from the outset that I'm leaning heavily upon two books from two different authors. One is a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And uh, those of you who have heard me before, you know, quote Tim Keller. Uh, my wife tells me I should, so I do. And uh, she's the big Tim Keller fan in our, in our household. Uh, but he wrote this book, and, and I have read portions, or actually most of this book. And I would say it is the best biblical theology on the subject of marriage. What is marriage? It's not the most hands-on practical. There are other books that are better, you know, how to have a healthy and strong marriage. It just does such a great job of explaining what marriage is from a biblical perspective and a biblical framework. The other book that I'm leaning on heavily, even more heavily, is a book called Seven Myths of Singleness by Sam Albury. I read this entire book uh, in the last week, and before you're impressed, it's pretty short. I just, I read through it. It's not a a heavy uh, book. It's not a, a super thick book. But I would say it was really, really helpful. And if you're not familiar with Sam Albury, I would, I would highly recommend that you be familiar with Sam Albury. Sam Albury is from England. He is a pastor at an at a Anglican-affiliated church. And he is somewhere in his mid-40s. And he is unmarried, and he is single, and he is celibate. If you've not heard of him before, his, his first book that he wrote that kind of gained more widespread attention is called Is God Anti-Gay? Because he is someone who early in his life realized that he experienced attraction towards members of the same sex. And he also wrestled with it in the light of what the scripture teaches about the nature of marriage. And he realized that God's intention and plan for marriage is that it would be between one man and one woman for the entirety of life. And so he committed himself to the other option, the other biblical option, which is celibacy, a commitment to honor God with his sexuality and with his desires by saying, I'm going to be a single celibate man. And now he leads and preaches in the church and has just an amazing ministry and has been mightily used by God. And so I'm going to quote him. I'm going to lean on him heavily today as a single man, as a single pastor to help us understand these issues. Again, these are not things that I can speak from experience from as much, but he has some good wisdom to share with us. And if you're going to read those books, I obviously would recommend both of them to you. I've linked to them up on the website, but I would actually recommend them to you in the reverse order that you might think. For those of you who are married, I would highly recommend that you read the book on singleness. 
And for those of you who are unmarried, I would highly recommend you read The Meaning of Marriage by Keller to see perspective from someone who is in a different season or stage of life than you are. So I'll I'll just leave that by way of introduction. I recommend both of them to you. Here's where I want to start. I want to start with some theology, a biblical theology of marriage and singleness, and then we'll move into some practicals. And so the big idea that I'm working from today, the big theological idea that is going to be our establishing point, our starting ground, is this. Human marriage is a good and beautiful thing, but it is not an ultimate thing. All marriages, all human marriages are signs that point us to the ultimate marriage. Theologically, this is our framework. This is our foundation. Marriage is a great good. Let's start with that. Point number one, marriage is a great good. Okay, marriage is a great good for many reasons. And I want to at least start there because sometimes I feel like certain pastors or Bible teachers or authors in an effort to let people know that the whole like happily ever after thing that we see in, you know, Disney princess movies isn't necessarily like the totality of the picture, right? Any of my married folks, you give, give me an amen on that. Like, oh yeah, a few of you raise your hands too quickly. Let's talk afterwards. Uh, but this idea of, you know, happily ever after, and then they just, you know, they rode off into the sunset and all was bliss after that. Mar- marriage can be challenging. Marriage absolutely can be challenging, but the starting point is that marriage is a great good. It is a beautiful thing. It is a thing to be celebrated, a thing to be appreciated. Marriage is a great good because it was instituted by God himself. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, it says that God formed the woman from the side of the man, and then it says that God, the, the, the verbs and the language are very active. God brought the woman to the man, and they were joined together in what we see is the first marriage. And, and certain theologians and biblical scholars refer to it as the first wedding ceremony and that it was performed by God himself. So marriage is a great good because it was instituted by God. And how many of you know, all things that come from our God are good. Marriage is a great good. The book of Proverbs tells us just that it's a good thing. Proverbs 18.2 just legitimately flatly says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So if you are married, recognize that you have a good thing from God. And Proverbs 31 says a woman like this, she, she, you find this amazing wife, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than uh, rubies or many precious gemstones. A good marriage is a rare treasure that should be safeguarded, protected, championed. And the book of Hebrews says that marriage should be held in honor by all. So married and unmarried alike, is marriage a good thing? Okay. Now, here's where I need to spend a little bit more time though, because many of you, especially if you've, been around the church for any length of time, you need to hear this clearly. Marriage, while it is a great good, is not an ultimate good. Human marriage in and of itself is not an ultimate thing. Sometimes in the church, we can miss this. Pastors and and churches, they do teaching series, you know, weeks and weeks in about marriage, and it's kind of almost maybe accidentally, maybe clearly communicated that if you aren't married, you're not experiencing the fullness of the goodness of God. That, that somehow there's like a, a second-class citizenship. Sometimes it's not communicated uh, intentionally. Sometimes it just straight up is communicated intentionally. I have heard with my own ears at least two, maybe three different pastors say things, very disparaging remarks towards those who are unmarried. It's not like the Bible isn't clear about these things. It's not like it's, you know, the the Bible talks about, it's not like it's hiding in some, you know, hidden book of the Bible, like, you know, the book of Hezekiah or something like that. Some of you got, that's not a real book of the Bible. Some of you got that. Okay. Matthew 22, for example, Jesus is having a conversation with a group of religious leaders who are known as the Sadducees. And they don't believe in the final resurrection. They don't really believe in supernatural stuff. So they come up with this ridiculous scenario to try to trick Jesus and trap Jesus in which one woman gets married seven different times to a series of brothers. Each brother keeps dying and she marries all of them. And they're like, well, Jesus, when the resurrection happens, which one is she going to be married to? 
you know, riddle me this. And Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Very subtle, uh, that, uh, Jesus. But he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now just pause for a moment. I love my marriage. I love my wife. My wife, I, you know, we just celebrated our 18th anniversary a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't know what I would do without her in this life. And it can be a, a hard and a challenging thing to hear Jesus say that marriage, the institution of marriage as we know it, is for this age. And in the age to come, there is something different. There is something ultimately greater that we will experience. Chew on that for a moment. Actually, if you back up just a few chapters in Matthew 19, Jesus is having uh, another argument with another religious leader group. Go figure. He had a habit of of doing this. And Jesus is having this conversation, this argument with with these religious leaders who are basically saying, "You you need to make a ruling on divorce. Different rabbis were having fights about, you know, is divorce uh, uh, an option? Is it not an option? Should divorce be made easy? Should it be a very high standard? And Jesus says, it's only because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to have a divorce. But from the beginning, it wasn't that way. That's not how it's supposed to be. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for on the grounds of sexual immorality, and then marries another, commits adultery. So now we maybe are familiar with that. You've heard that before. Whenever subject of divorce comes up, we quote that. But what is the disciples' response after Jesus says that? Whoa. Maybe it's better that some people shouldn't get married. Now what does Jesus say to their response? No, you idiots. Everyone should be married. No, that's not what he says. He goes, not everyone can receive this but only those to whom it is given. And then he actually goes in to talk about eunuchs and, and he basically says, you know, some are, are born that way from birth. Some are made eunuchs. I mean, kings would do that sometimes to, uh, you know, servants. If you don't know what a eunuch is, kids, ask your parents after service. And then he says, <laughs> love you guys. And then he says, some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus speaks of that in a good, positive way. What he says is some have, have foregone that privilege of marriage and procreation for the sake of following Jesus. And it's a good thing. One more, 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, who we've been reading in our passage today, he said, and I say this to you, more like a concession, not a command, which, by the way, if you want to just think about something, authoritative scripture, word of God, Paul saying, no, this isn't a command, just an idea to chew on. That's a whole another sermon in and of itself. He says, I wish that you could all be like I myself am. Well, you know, each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's it's good for them. It is good for them. Good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Like, wow, real tender there, Paul. Like, I mean, this is the guy that wrote, you know, the great Ephesians 5 marriage passage and the 1 Corinthians 13 love passage. He's like, yeah, but if you can't just control yourself, just go get married. It's fine. You're not doing anything wrong. Just go get married. I, I didn't know that I could maybe be doing wrong by getting married, Paul. The point there being is that Jesus and Paul both lift up and champion singleness as a great good. And so one of the points I want you to hear me make clearly today is that because marriage is such a special and a beautiful thing, we can turn it into an idol. If you are here today and you are unmarried and you have been the recipient of comments, whether it's from pastors or other Christians who have elevated marriage to a place of ultimacy beyond what it should be, and that has hurt you and caused you uh, pain, make you feel like a second-class citizen, I am deeply sorry. That is not representative of the full counsel of the word of God. Yes, marriage is a great good. It should be held in honor by all, including those of you who are single. But it in and of itself is not an ultimate thing. Tim Keller writes, he says, In ancient cultures, long-term single adults were considered to be living a human life that was less than fully realized. And I just, by the way, only in ancient cultures? Do we, do we have a culture right now that seems, Christian or not, that seems to be um, 
just absolutely bent on ultimizing the romantic relationship. You've heard me make fun of it before, but the whole line, no, you complete me as though you are somehow not a complete human being in and of yourself before the presence of a holy God unless you have that special other person, the other half of the heart-shaped locket that fits together perfectly, which even those of you who are married know that there is no such thing as a perfect other half heart-shaped locket. You got all sorts of jagged edges that... Like that's, that's just a silly belief, but we, we are surrounded by it. Keller says, but Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, and leading theologian, the apostle Paul, were both single their entire lives. Single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings than married persons because Jesus Christ, as a single man, was the perfect man. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that uh, singleness is a good condition blessed by God. And in many circumstances, is actually better than marriage. So, so for all of us, we have to hold this intention that marriage is this incredible, special, beautiful, God-ordained thing, and yet in and of itself, it is not ultimate, which leads me to the next point I want you to consider, which is it's a signpost pointing us to the deeper reality of Christ's marriage to the church. Christ's marriage to the church is what is ultimate. Get this from Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul, as I mentioned, this great section in Ephesians about marriage, and he's talking about how a husband loves his wife, and the wife loves and honors her husband, and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes the book of Genesis, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your, okay, married folk, Your marriage refers to Christ and the church. I like the language of a sign, a signpost. You ever go on a road trip somewhere? You know, you're going to go to a a beautiful destination, you know, waterfall, Mount Rainier, the Grand Canyon. And if you're ever driving to one of those places, you'll see signs. Grand Canyon, you know, 50 miles that way. How foolish would it be to park the minivan on the side of the road, pile all your kids out of the car, go stand by the sign, take a picture with the sign that says Grand Canyon 50 miles that way and say, we did it! We did it! We have found the Grand Canyon. No, you found the sign. Your marriage is a sign that points to a greater reality. The greater reality is this, that, that we have all wandered away from God. The Bible, especially if you read the Old Testament prophets, if you read the, 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 the Hebrew prophets, they will often refer to our sinfulness as that of spiritual adultery. That God has loved us, that God has made a covenant to us that is akin to a marriage and that we, through our wicked hearts, have committed spiritual adultery, even on, our, on the proverbial wedding night. You want, a, you want a, an interesting study with some interesting language? Read the book of Hosea. The Hebrew prophet Hosea uses that metaphor of, of unfaithfulness and adultery toward a loving God who has done nothing but give us himself. So the gospel is that Christ comes on a rescue mission full of grace and truth to speak of the, of, the, of the desire of our God in heaven to not let the relationship be left in tatters, but to move toward us with mercy and grace. And Christ goes to the cross and he dies a, a death in our place, a sacrificial death, an atoning death, a death of forgiveness and grace and mercy to say that all who trust in him can have their spiritual adultery washed clean. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, yet they will be made white as snow. And that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for us. 
And then on the third day, he rises from the dead, leaving the grave clothes behind, leaving the empty tomb behind, saying, you can trust what I say because I have conquered over death itself. This is our Jesus. This is our Savior. And friends, every time you look at a marriage, every time you look at a husband and a wife coming together and loving each other and serving each other, it is meant to be a signpost that points us to that reality. I had an opportunity on Friday night, just a few nights ago, to do a a vow renewal ceremony on the 10-year anniversary of one of the couples in our church. Some of you, if you were here last week, you heard me make the line that I don't let couples write their own vows when I do weddings because 99 times out of 100, they don't write vows. They write like expressions of mushy sentiment and it's not really vows that they make. And so I'm that mean pastor who says, you want to be mushy later, but in in the wedding ceremony, we're taking vows, doggone it. And then a couple walk up to me and they go, hey, yeah, that was us 10 years ago. Uh, our 10-year anniversary is on Friday. We've been thinking about doing like a vow renewal ceremony. I'm like, well, if you didn't really take vows, is it a renewal? And they're like, well, good point. And so either way, I had no one to blame but myself. And I sat with them and we, 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 they exchanged vows again and, and, and renewed their covenant and renewed their commitment one to another. And it was this beautiful and this precious moment that points to a greater reality. It points to the reality that the we have sinned against God. And even though at times we continue to sin against God, his grace is greater than our sin and he is in the business of covenant renewal. I I stumbled across something this week. I I need more time to think about it, but it's in my brain, so I'm gonna say it to you now. A pastor from the like 1700s in Scotland said that every single time we gather on a Sunday and we worship and we celebrate the broken bread and the cup, we are participating in a covenant renewal ceremony with our God. I, don't, I need to think on that one some more, but I just gave it to you as a gift. Okay. Now, for those of you who are married, your marriage points to Jesus. What about for those of you who are unmarried? Well, guess what? Your life serves to point to Jesus as well in a different way. Sam Albury says it this way. He says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people, not as a supposedly endless source of free babysitting. (laughs) Tell this was written by a single guy. I love it. But to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end, the goal of all of our longing comes in Jesus. So it's almost like whether we are married or unmarried, all of our lives are meant to point to the gospel of Jesus. Surprise. Marriage is a great good, It is not an ultimate thing, but it is a great good that serves to point us to the ultimate marriage, which is Christ and his bride. Now, let me me get practical for a minute because both those who are married and those who are unmarried face challenges. And our passage in 1 Corinthians addresses some of them. Again, Sam Albury, I'll let him tee it up for us. He says this, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. And the temptation for many who are single, is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. So I'm going to address both, in the presence of both. And the point of this is not to say, well, who's got more challenges and who's got more difficulties? The point of all of this is to engender grace and love and service towards one another. To the married, the first thing that you will notice in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is that the Apostle Paul says the word anxiety five times. And I'm not particularly wild about the use of the word anxiety for the Greek word that's underneath that. The the ESV uses anxiety. I think maybe a better word would be a concern. Something that you need to think about. Something that takes up mental energy and, and takes up time and attention. Money, the house, kids, the schedule. Marriage is a, marriage is a weird relationship. 
I don't mean like your marriage or my marriage. Like I just mean like marriage in and of itself is a weird thing, is it not? Like think about what marriage is. It's one part friend. It's one part lover. It's one part roommate. It is one part business financial partner. And if the Lord would bless you with kids, it's one part co-parent. And then some of y'all are crazy enough to add in like actual business partner and you try to like work together. God love you. I don't know how you do that. Marriage is like that, like Comcast bundle where it's like an all-in-one thing. And you like, like you can have a roommate, you can have a friend, you know, for some, you know, people have just a lover, but like marriage is all in one. Does that not concern you? Does that not create challenges? Does that not create difficulties? Why are we fighting? My, my parents would always say, like, one of the biggest fights they ever had had to do with, like, how you load the dishwasher. It is still a point of contention in their marriage to this day, and they just had their 40th wedding anniversary. It's the dishwasher, for crying out loud. But you can't unbundle that roommate part from all the rest of marriage. The other thing that the Apostle Paul says there is a challenge of being married is this idea of divided focus. Divided focus. Married people, if you wanted to devote four hours a day to prayer and the reading of the word, do you think eventually your spouse would say something? They would. I don't know your spou- who your spouse is, but they would say something. Because eventually, hey, this dishwasher needs to be loaded. <laughs> the kids need to go somewhere. Hey, can somebody take the trash? Or, hey, could somebody, you know, hey, what, what are we, are we going to go have a date night? What are we doing? Like, oh, I'm sorry, I've got my four hours of Bible reading and prayer. I need to devote myself to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that for married people, that's a real challenge. Now, some of you are like, that's a false dichotomy. You can serve the Lord by serving your spouse. Absolutely. I, I, I hear you on that. I agree. But just the reality is, the pragmatic reality is, you only have so many hours in a day. And if you have made a covenant to another human being to love them, serve them, support them, particularly if children enter into the picture, it's just, it's a lot to juggle. Can I get an amen from any of the married folks? Now, for the unmarried, two particular challenges that are seen in this passage, and the first one is what the Apostle Paul calls just burning with passion. In our sermon series, next week, we will spend the entirety of the teaching time devoted to the subject of biblical sexual ethics. And I share that for you for two reasons. Number one, for those of you, I know obviously we have children here present with us and uh, nothing, uh, we have a guest preacher, Justin. I spoke, uh, spoke with him on the phone on Thursday. Nothing will be gratuitous or graphic, but just in case you didn't want to have more afternoon conversations with your kids, just a heads up on that. But I also share that with you because I only have limited time today and I just want to simply say this. For those of you who are unmarried, There is the reality of just physical attraction and desires. And those desires can lead you to make choices that are outside of the will of God that will ultimately leave you more empty and more unsatisfied than when you stepped in. And I'm pleading with you, those of you who are unmarried, to make a commitment to honoring God with your sexuality within the bounds that he has set. Everything that God would command us or instruct us is for our good. And even in the moment when it feels like this this portion of who you are is being wasted or squandered, just remember that even that is meant to be a signpost that points us to an even greater reality. Again, Sam Albury says it this way. I love what he says. He says, when I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, I am to think of that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our creator. A restlessness that has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all who come to him. Sexual sin feels like the answer to that restlessness, but like all of sin's pleasures, it is only temporary and fleeting. Celibacy, as, as Sam has committed himself to, isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is, uh, uh, what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for, to point us to God's love for us in Christ. So to those of you who are unmarried, 
This means avoiding things like one-night stands. This means avoiding things like uh, dating somebody and beginning a sexual relationship before you have made that vow, that covenant of marriage. That means not being with someone who doesn't share your faith and your beliefs. Out, out, of, out of a desire to fulfill that loneliness, I have watched people get themselves into relationships with someone who's not a Christian, doesn't treasure Christ the way that they do, and it's ultimately more painful than had you trusted in Jesus in the first place. I want to say that with a lot of tenderness, a lot of compassion, but I want you to hear that what God would instruct us is always for our good. The second one, which is not as explicit in this passage, but it is, it is implicit, is the idea of loneliness. And, and with loneliness, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul uses the word unmarried. And I actually try my best to use that word more, even exclusively, more than the word single. First of all, it's a more biblical word. But second of all, the idea of single Solo, alone. Great theologian John Lennon, one is the loneliest number, right? There is a great good in marriage of the idea of companionship. But marriage is not the only place where we find true companionship and even deep intimacy. Because to put all of the weight for companionship and intimacy to know and to truly be known is, in marriage is to forget something that the Bible talks about a lot. And that's the idea of friendship. Uh, this is also going to be another sermon later in the summer. We're going to spend an entire Sunday talking about the theme of friendship. But let me just say briefly that right now our nation is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. I read a couple of different reports this week, uh, one of which actually comes from Cigna. It's a, it's a, it's a nationwide study. I think it was something like 20,000 participants in this Cigna report. This came out last year, and this is that 46% of people report that they sometimes or always feel alone. 46%. That is virtually half report feelings of loneliness, sometimes or even always. That's a lot. 27% rarely or never feel like they're understood. A quarter, a quarter of the people never feeling understood. 53% have, uh, only 53% have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. That's only half are experiencing what we were created for, which is relationship. And this is not from the Cigna report, it's from another study that was done just in Seattle. And it said 49% of Seattleites answered the question, no, I don't want to interact with people I don't know. I will also address that study at length in week six of this series, Loving Your Actual Neighbor. To those of you who are unmarried, I, I, I don't share this with you to, to try to, well, I'll just say it this way. Many, many people are experiencing loneliness. Married, unmarried, otherwise. We have lost, point six, we have lost the art of deep friendship. We have lost the art of deep friendship. Maybe we never had it. Maybe I should say that differently. Maybe we don't know how to be friends in a nation that was founded with, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go over here and do my own thing and tell everyone else what to do. Sorry, that was negative. I'm watching a documentary right now about the origins of religion in America. But we have a hard time being good friends. We have a hard time with true deep face-to-face -face intimacy in relationships. And it's, it's such a tragedy because marriage, by its very definition, marriage is a relationship of exclusivity. How many spouses should you have? Thank you, right answer. One spouse. How many friends should you have? As, as many as the Lord would give to you. 
Marriage is by definition a relationship of exclusivity. Friendship is not. And when done rightly, more friends can actually make it more merry. C.S. Lewis said that friendship is the least jealous of the loves. And, And particularly for you men, we have in our culture conflated friendship and sexuality in a way that is completely dishonoring to what friendship is and should be. And I hear comments, you know, if, if two men ever, you know, embrace, give a hug, say, hey man, I love you, or, or say something affectionate or kind, they follow it up with this foolish and inane no homo. You guys know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you've not heard that. I hear that. No homo, man. Like you can't hug a guy or say that you love him or that you have uh, some sort of care and affection for him without that automatically being equated with, with uh, being gay. That's, that's horrible. This is where people come along and say, oh, look at David and Jonathan and their friendship. They obviously must have been lovers because he says that, that his love for Jonathan is better than that for the love of women. Do you know what David had? He had people trying to take him down. And he really gave into it a lot. But Jonathan was a friend who actually seemed like he had his best interests out for him. David struggled in his marriages. Might be a clue. But he, he and Jonathan shared a relationship, a friendship that was beautiful, that was tender, that was close, that was intimate. Friends, we need to recapture the art of true biblical friendship. We'll talk about that more later in the summer, but I just at least want to put that there. Let me, let me wrap this up with some instructions, some practical things for us to do. To those of you who are married, I am challenging you to pursue unmarried people. If you have a spouse, if you have children, that is a good and wonderful thing do not let the nuclear family become the be-all, end-all. Do not let your only relationships be with other people who are in your same stage of life. Nothing wrong with, you know, mom and kid play dates or families getting together. That's a good thing. I don't want to denigrate that, but don't let that be the totality of your relationships. Actually, that's not even just married and single. Don't only be friends with people who are the same age as you. Don't only be friends with people who are in the same season of life. Different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. We, we need a diverse community so that we can learn and grow and see things from other perspectives than our own. So married people, I know your interests are divided. I know your attention goes all over the place, but make sure that you are including those who are unmarried in your life. And again, Sam Albury said, not just for babysitting. Hey, we're going on a hike. Hey, we're having dinner. Hey, we're going to a baseball game. Include those who are unmarried. Make it a priority. To those of you who are unmarried, I'm instructing you, I'm pleading with you, make a commitment in your heart to a biblical approach to marriage. Don't make foolish decisions just because you're experiencing that, that sense of longing or that sense of loneliness. Trust in the sufficiency of Christ and in the power of the gospel to be what meets your deepest longings because that's all that marriage is for in the long run is a signpost to point us to Jesus. Also, to those of you who are unmarried, I I just urge you, use your time wisely. You, you, You do have a great gift. I am so incredibly thankful. We have many unmarried people in positions of leadership and influence and service at Sound City Bible Church, and I don't know what we would do without them. We have, we have several people who are not themselves married, don't themselves have children, like leading and running and organizing the entire kids' ministry, serving you, married people, who made all those kids. You know how that happens, right? I'll leave that again for Justin next week. Use your time wisely, singles. Use that gift that you have to be a blessing to both married and unmarried. No more blanket statements. I hear comments like, oh, they're still single? What's wrong with them? No more of that. I hear single people say, oh, none of my married friends have any time for me. How does that lead toward unity and grace and love of each other. No more, no, more, no more blanket statements, no more lobbing bombs. 
from a position of either jealousy or suspicion or fear. To both seek contentment. Whether you are currently married or unmarried, you can pursue contentment in Christ Jesus. You must pursue contentment in Christ Jesus. And if you do not pursue your ultimate contentment in Christ Jesus, you will ultimately crush those around you because you will seek to extract from them what only God can deliver. For both, seek to learn. Seek to learn. Seek to understand. For those of you who are married and have been married for a while, seek to remind yourself of what it was like when you were unmarried. Unmarried people, can can I just say this? You can learn about marriage and you can have an opinion on married people things without having yourself experienced marriage. You can say things like to your friend, hey, I don't, I don't know if you're loving your wife particularly well there. Well, you've never been married. How do you know? Well, I know what love looks like and that's not it. You don't have to have experienced every single thing in life to be able to offer God's truth and God's wisdom. Obviously do so with humility, but if you learn, if you spend time with that person and you seek to have a a posture of humility and learning, then by, by God's grace, you can say things. And both seek to serve each other. All should serve. All are called to pursue Christ in serving each other, serving the world with God's love, I had a couple, married couple after the first service tell me that the husband was going over, I think later today, to go fix the, a sink or something for a single gal in the church. Love it. Awesome. More of that, please. More of that. Seek to serve. Seek to include and invite in a way that lifts up the other. And I'll close with this. Whether married or unmarried, if you are in Christ we are invited to the ultimate party and the ultimate marriage at the end of the age. Revelation 19, John says, I, I, I heard something that sounded like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty loud peals of thunder. And it was a sound that was crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints as we love each other, as we serve each other. The angel said to me, write this down. Those people who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are blessed. And if you are in Christ, whether you are married or unmarried, if you are in Christ, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. I'll give Sam Albury the last word here. He says, the most fully human and complete person ever to live on this earth did so as someone who was single, and yet he called himself the bridegroom. The marriage he came for was the one all of us who are in him will enjoy for eternity. His singleness on earth bore witness to this ultimate marriage that he had come to establish. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, which is simply a foretaste of this ultimate banquet that we are all invited to if you are in Christ. God, thank you for the marriages who are, that are present in this room. And I thank you for those who are here who are themselves unmarried. And God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of church community that loves each other well, that points each other to the hope and the ultimacy of our marriage as the bride of Christ. Jesus, for all of us, would you help us to grow in our contentment? Would you help us to grow in our love for you and our worship of you? Would you help us to see marriage for what it is in this age as a signpost that points us to the deeper and truer and more ultimate reality of our marriage to you? Help us now as we come to the table to anticipate the great marriage supper of the Lamb that awaits us. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Pastor Doug, lead us, please. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Sure appreciate uh, 
the faithful delivery of the word to us. We're, we're very fortunate. So we're going to transition now from the sermon to communion. If you want to go ahead and take out the communion elements and get those opened up, I'll go ahead and uh, start leading us in communion here. In the first verse of today's sermon, Paul said, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he mentions the word four more times in the next three verses. I don't know about you, but being anxious really weighs me down and and makes me weary. In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us, all you who are weary, heavy laden, come to me for rest. In communion, believers are called to come to the table of the Lord's Supper, to remember his suffering, his death, and resurrection. Let me start by reading from 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But Paul also tells us that before taking communion, we're called to take some time of self-examination. So we do this every week. It's one of the things I love about Sound City. But it can be a routine. So today, take some time. Seek God. Paul tells us, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Communion is for those who are in relationship with the Father who have acknowledged their sin, brokenness, and need of a Savior. So as we move into this next time, believers, pray and reflect before taking the bread and juice. We need to take time to confess where we might be anxious, areas that we're not trusting God. So we don't come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. If you find yourself here today and you're not a believer. Now is the time. Jesus died that you would know the Father. So take this time to confess your need. Ask Jesus to give you rest, to forgive your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, to reveal more of himself to you. You ask and he will. I'm going to pray for us now and then moment the band will lead us in singing so father i come to you in the name of jesus our savior on behalf of those here today direct our hearts father as we come before you make us aware of the ways we don't trust you because sometimes we just don't know where we're not trusting you and our need of salvation father draw us near to you that we may experience your rest We love you, we thank you, that we are chosen by you and you give us your name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.